morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. We welcome all who are with us this morning. First of all, all that are here in our gymnasium. Secondly, all who are joining us in the St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM and literally around the world on KFUO.org. We welcome all of you here this morning, the opportunity to study God's Word. For those of you who are here in the gymnasium, there are sheets over on the side that you'll find helpful along with the Bibles that are over there as well. Um, if you haven't been listening for a couple weeks, maybe just to make the announcement, we've done a bit of a shift in terms of our subject matter here on Sunday mornings. For those of you that have been listening over last couple of years at least, we uh, have been in the pattern of looking at the lessons, the scripture lessons that are assigned for the following Sunday. And uh, let's see, three weeks ago now, we changed up. We are for six weeks covering the six chief parts of the Christian faith, uh, according to Luther's small catechism. And so today, uh, we are going to be looking at the sacrament of Holy Communion, or the Lord's Supper. Sacrament of the altar goes by a number of different names. Okay. So before we do that, though, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you with thanksgiving and praise for all of your blessings to us, and especially as we were reminded again this morning through your word, the blessing of your Son, Jesus Christ, the one whom you promised and the one who came to crush the head of Satan and to give his victory over sin, death, and the grave to all of us. We thank and praise you for this knowledge and for all that you continue to do for us, and especially today we ask your Holy Spirit to be with us and guide and bless our study and our discussion of your sacrament of your supper to us. We ask that you bless us in this study, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Maybe just a little bit of a review. I know that last week uh, Pastor Thompson talked about baptism, and that would be the other sacrament in the Lutheran Church that we have. But let's first of all talk about how we define what a sacrament is in the Lutheran Church and what makes something a sacrament or something not a sacrament in the Lutheran Church, as far as our understanding goes. First of all, there are, there are three characteristics or three uh, qualities that we say something should have if it is going to be considered a sacrament in the Lutheran Church. The first of these is that it is instituted or started by God. In other words, there is some command that we find in Scripture to do this. So it is a sacred act that, first of all, was instituted or started by God. And I'll, we'll show you uh, where that is with the Lord's Supper. Uh, for baptism, remember last week, uh, I'm sure Pastor Thompson talked about the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So we would say... For baptism, that's where Christ instituted, or God instituted that. And wasn't, it's not just something that, you know, is a nice thing to do, and the church has said, well, you know, that's kind of a nice thing. We'll make that a sacrament, like, uh, like a voters meeting, for example. You know, we have voters meetings, but we don't, we don't at all say that that is a sacrament, and, and we'll, uh, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Secondly, there must be some physical or visible element. So in baptism, the physical element would be the water. In the Lord's Supper, it would be the bread and the wine, okay? So it has to be instituted or started by God, have a physical or a visible element, and then finally, and very importantly, it must give the forgiveness of sin. It must convey 
or uh, communicate the forgiveness of sin to us. And that's uh, probably the most important part uh, of the sacrament itself. So we're going to see as we get into the Lord's Supper how those things work out. So that's why in the Lutheran Church we have just the two sacraments, uh, because these two, these two items meet, you might say, those criteria. Now, um, any, if any of you have a Roman Catholic background, you may know that in the Roman Catholic Church there are seven sacraments or seven items that the Roman Catholic Church considers to be a sacrament. They have the same as we do in terms of baptism and the Lord's Supper, but they will include confirmation also, which again we confirm, but it's not, we don't consider it a sacrament. Marriage is also a sacrament. Um, ordination for a priest or holy orders is considered a sacrament. Uh, penance, or the confession, absolution, penance, they consider to be a sacrament. And then finally also the anointing with oil, sometimes called extreme unction, uh, when someone is very ill or near, near the end. Now, again, I'm not being critical of Roman Catholic Church. I'm just saying that that is a difference in the way we view what a sacrament is. Let's take, let's take for example, marriage, okay? Um, and, and say why we don't consider it a sacrament. So let's say, first of all, uh, could we say that God instituted marriage? Okay, yeah. Where, where did God institute marriage? Garden of Eden, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh, right? So we say, okay, there's a command from God. There's an institution by God. Um, what about a visible or a physical element? What might you use as a visible or a physical element? Ring, yeah, ring might be, you know. Now, does just getting married give to you the forgiveness of sin? No, we don't find anywhere in the scriptures where uh, getting married uh, conveys with it the forgiveness of sins. Uh, I always joke that you probably need more after you get married than you <laughs> did before. <laughs> it's like the, uh, the Old Testament lesson today. Uh, you know, God comes, uh, Adam, where are you? Well, anyway, get down to what happened. And uh, Adam, what's Adam, what's Adam's response? Did he, does he say, oh, yeah, it's my, it's my fault, I sinned. And my response was, it's Eve. It's Eve. It's this woman you gave me, right? Then Eve doesn't take responsibility. She blames the serpent, right? And uh, so, uh, anyway, that, that's... Far away. Uh, we, we don't consider marriage to be a sacrament. Now, it's not that we are opposed to marriage. Obviously not. We, it's just that we don't consider it to be a sacrament, okay? Uh, let's do one more. Confirmation, for example, okay? We would say, first of all, there is no command in the scriptures uh, for what we do as confirmation today. And we would say that, uh, I'm not sure of a visible element, maybe the uh, Maybe the catechism could be a visible element, but again, just being confirmed, we say, doesn't give one the forgiveness of sins, okay? So, at any rate, we're just, we're looking at it a little bit differently than the Roman Catholic Church is, uh, and we'll talk a little bit later on when we get down to talking about the, uh, the sacrament itself, what differentiates our position from, let's say, a Baptist or a Methodist uh, position, a uh, reform position on this as well. But I just want to make you aware of the difference between uh, for those of you, the Catholic Church does have sacraments. In fact, they have seven. And again, we just define them differently. Okay? All right. Now, getting to the Lord's Supper in particular, there is a special meal that Christ was eating with his disciples on Maundy Thursday evening. This is Thursday of Holy Week, called Maundy because um, it comes from a Latin word, mandatum, which means command. 
And when Jesus was eating this meal with his disciples in the upper room, he said, A new command I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's the mandatum he gave us, and that's why Monday Thursday is called Monday Thursday. Actually, the Monday doesn't have a thing to do with the Lord's Supper. It has to do with that command that he gave. However, he is there eating a special meal with his disciples, the Passover meal. And I wanted to give you a little background on the Passover meal because there are definitely connections here to Christ and to the whole concept of, of blood giving you forgiveness and life. Okay? So, uh, long story short, God's people have been in Egypt in the Old Testament. They've been slaves there for 430 years. And things were getting worse and worse in terms of God's people being oppressed. And God is going to release his people from their slavery in Egypt. Uh, he, he summons Moses, calls Moses to lead his people out of this slavery. He tries a number of, of um, plagues, first of all. Uh, frogs, turning the Nile to blood, uh, you know, all, the, all these plagues, and the Pharaoh does not let his people go. Finally, God is going to come up with the one and final plague, and that's the one we're going to read about here. And this is the one that is the, the occasion for the Passover meal actually starting, okay? So follow along with me, if you would. And uh, well, let's read, uh, first of all, read this whole section here. We're just going to read it right through. This is from Exodus chapter 12, and then we'll go back and talk about uh, some of this. So starting at verse 3 there. So this is God commanding here. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb... Then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day. So that's four days, right? Starting with the 10th day till the 14th day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So the whole nation is going to kill uh, these lambs. Each, each household has one. If your household is too small, you can go together with another household. And at twilight, on the 14th day of that month, they're all going to kill their lambs. And then what? Verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood... And put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall, uh, shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. 
on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Okay? So let's go back and just kind of recap this. This is the final plague now that God is going to bring, and it is going to be actually the striking dead of the firstborn in each of the houses in Egypt, and that, that's both man and animal, man and beast. So that night, God is going to come through and execute this judgment, okay? And that finally is, is going to happen, and finally uh, the Pharaoh is going to, at least momentarily, let God's people go. There's a... Another story connected with that. He does finally pursue them, and that's when Moses is up against the Red Sea and parts the Red Sea and so on. But that's, we won't go into all that. That's other detail. Now, let's go back and kind of review this. So this Passover meal is first done back here in Exodus 12, and this is the same meal that Jesus is eating with his disciples. Let's go back and answer these questions if we can. What type of lamb was to be selected by each household. You see that up there? How, how, uh, how many years old? One year old, uh, male or female? Male. Uh, was it be one that's kind of sick and gonna die anyway? And oh well, we'll just use this one. Spotless, without blemish, okay? So it's not, you, you know, you couldn't go and uh, get one that's uh, uh, limping and probably, probably not gonna be around much longer. It's supposed to be in its prime. One-year-old male, no blemish at all. Okay, so again, a prime male lamb, sheep or, uh, sheep or goats. Then, uh, what was to be done with the blood of the lamb? They're, at twilight, they're all going to kill their lambs at twilight. What are they going to do with the blood, though? Brush it on the doorposts, so the side doorposts, and the lintel, which would be you know, above the, the door. So they're going to just imagine that all those houses were marked with the blood of a lamb, okay? Which keep in mind because we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Now, what was going to be done with the blood when the angel uh, or when God passes, uh, the answer, when God comes over that night, what is that blood actually doing? It's marking the houses of, of whom? His own people, right? It's, he, he is, it's a way of marking his own people. They are set apart from all the Egyptians because of this blood that is on their doorposts and on the lentil of their house. Okay? Then, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, what type of bread was to be used? Did you pick that up? Unleavened. Now, what is unleavened bread? Bread without what? Yeast, yeah. So yeast is actually what makes bread rise, right? If we were to set a little bit of yeast in there, it, the, over time the, the loaf of dough would puff up. And leaven is actually used in the Old Testament and other places as well as a symbol, I guess you would say, for sin and that which corrupts because, again, just a little bit of leaven spreads throughout the whole loaf. And so it's a very um, a dramatic, I guess you would say, symbol for sin. But it was to be unleavened bread, so flat, okay? And then uh, also, uh, what type of herbs were to be used? 
bitter herbs. And the question, why bitter herbs? We think that, you know, this is eaten, this is going to be eaten every year. And we think the bitter herbs were to remind God's people of their bitter experience as slaves in Egypt. That was kind of a, a real physical way to be able to think about the bitter experience they had as slaves there in Egypt. Okay? And now, what was God going to do that night? Come over again and strike the firstborn in every household. And again, that blood, he says there, when I see that blood, I will pass over. So that's where it gets its name from. I will pass over your houses. Okay? So in a very real way, the blood of that lamb, that Passover lamb, was actually what spared God's people uh, having that happen to them. And so it's in faith they did that, and that's exactly what ends up happening. And uh, that's, that's why it's called the Passover. Then finally, uh, what was to happen for generations to come? Yeah, it's to be remembered or, or uh, kept as a feast for many years to come. I always point this out. You know, today sometimes people wonder, well, you know, we are um, what's called a more liturgical church in the Lutheran church, meaning that we have something called a liturgical calendar. And so we go by different, there are different festivals, different feasts that we do each and every year. Uh, sometimes they fall on the same day, such as Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Epiphany. They fall on the same day every year. Other times, they move around, like Easter moves around every year. And so that Easter moves around, that means Ash Wednesday moves around. And that means that uh, uh, the transfiguration of our Lord moves around, okay? And here's the, why do we do this? Why do we keep doing this year after year after year after year? Why do you think? What's, what's the advantage of doing that year after year after year? Put it that way. What does it cause people to do? Remember. Yeah. You know, you can just see God setting this up and establishing this. That's why he wants this done year after year after year. So his people don't forget what he did in delivering them from their slavery in Egypt. And so he establishes this and says, this is to be a feast for you each year. And so, again... That's why we do much the same thing. Uh, you would hope we wouldn't forget what uh, things like Christmas and Easter would happen. But, you know, again, just think of it. If, if we just let it go and never observed it, hardly ever, maybe once in a while referred to it, uh, you, know, you could see it kind of falling back into the, into the woodwork. And the, the, this, in the Old Testament, this is the major act of freedom, God giving his people freedom, and, and it is likened onto uh, the, the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the Transfiguration, who's up there with uh, Peter, James, and John? You got which two other guys? Moses and Elijah. And they're talking about Christ. In, in, I, think it's in, I think it's in Mark. Uh, they're, they're actually talking about Christ's exodus, his leaving is going to the cross and, and dying and finally then ascending into heaven. So in the Old Testament, this was the major act of, you might say, of freedom and release for God's people, God freeing his people from this slavery in Egypt. And so this is to be a festival, an annual festival that they do. Today, 
Uh, I don't know if, do any of you have Jewish friends or uh, friends that are maybe even in your neighborhood? Uh, and, and, and they, this is still probably, I think, and I'm not an expert on this, but probably the big uh, holy day for, still, for Jews today. And uh, so it is all these years uh, still a, an incredible act of, uh, remembered as an incredible act of, of God freeing his people from their slavery in Egypt. And you'll see Jews celebrating it today. Um, now, by, I got down at the bottom of the sheet here. By the time that Christ came, there were uh, several cups of wine that were added. We don't see that in the initial back in Exodus. But by the time of Christ, several cups that were passed. There's a whole lot written about which cup was it that Christ took and, and said, this, is, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. Uh, many think it is the third cup that is passed in this meal. I frankly don't think we have any way of determining exactly which one it was. But again, it was during this meal that it occurs. Okay? So that is the background for what Christ was eating with his disciples Monday, Thursday. It's dramatic because what's going to happen in a matter of just a couple hours after they finish this meal, he leaves, Judas goes off to betray him, and Christ leaves the upper room and goes across the Kidron Valley, which is a, uh, not much of a valley, it's not very wide, uh, 15 minutes or so, and you're up on the Mount of Olives. And he goes up on the Mount of Olives with his disciples and is in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples and there is arrested. So this is the last time he'll be eating this Passover meal with his disciples. And it's uh, right before the time he is going to be arrested and eventually, of course, crucified. So it's quite dramatic. And we're going to see now, he doesn't keep it a Passover meal. He totally transforms it into a life-giving meal of a much different sort. And that's what we want to look at. Okay? Let me stop here for a moment. Any questions on what, I just, what we just talked about on the Passover meal itself? Or any comments? No? All right. Let's go on then. Uh, let's turn the page for those of you who are here and have the page. By the way, I think that these pages, for those of you who are listening, are available on... Uh, KFUO website or our website? Both, okay. Both, okay. So KFUO.org and stpaulsthepair.org. So uh, if you want to, you can access those there. Now, let me ask you this. We said it's a one-year-old male lamb without spot or blemish. Can anybody see a tie to Jesus at all? What is Jesus called? The what? Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He's without blemish also, isn't he? Without any sin. Totally uh, pure, blameless, righteous. And what about his blood? We don't put it on our doorposts and our lintel of our house. But just like the blood of that Passover lamb in the Old Testament actually saved God's people and gave them life, how much more does the blood of Christ, as we're going to see, given us in this meal, give us life? And, and more than just physical life here, but eternal life and forgiveness. So there is a direct correlation, we might say, a direct correspondence between that Passover lamb in the Old Testament and that blood that saved God's people 
to the Passover lamb, as we're going to see here, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and that blood that gives us life as well. So it, there's, a, there's a direct comparison there and very appropriate that Jesus is eating this meal. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 here. I've got it on your sheet. Uh, where Paul writes here, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Okay, now there's, a, there's an example of what I was telling you before, that leaven is used here. This is a New Testament passage used in the scriptures as a, uh, a metaphor, you might say, or an image for sin. Because, again, you put a little leaven into a, a, a dough, and it spreads out through the whole dough. And so it's an effective way of thinking about sin or talking about sin. So Paul says there, you know, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, sin, right? And be a new lump. <laughs> I know this is good. Uh, very flattering, but uh, be a new lump, you know, uh, be, a, be a lump of dough without leaven. In other words, uh, be sinless, you know, get the sin out. And uh, as, you really, uh, as you really are unleavened, for, and notice here, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So there Paul speaks of Christ as being the actual Passover lamb for all of us. That death has passed over us because of Christ. Then John 1.29, famous verse, when John, this would be John the Baptist here speaking. The next day, he, that'd be John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice he didn't say, Behold a Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. In other words, the one that we have been waiting for is here. The Lamb of God who takes away not just a few sins here and there, or not just his own, the sin of the world is taken away by him. Okay? So I wanted to show you that there are definitely these comparisons, uh, correspondences between Christ and the Passover lamb. In fact, Christ is even referred to as our Passover lamb. You know, we weren't there in Egypt, but he is our Passover lamb in many ways as well. Okay? Now, let's, next, let's look at the scripture accounts uh, that we have. Remember I said, we said something about, uh, the very first thing about a sacrament, we said it has to be instituted by God or by Christ. It's not just something that the church thought, oh, this is a nice thing, we'll just, we'll just keep doing this and call it a sacrament. No, it had to have been commanded by God or started by God. Let's look at the passages here in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians. And this is where we would say Christ instituted or commanded the Lord's Supper. So first of all, Matthew 26, we're looking at verses 26 through 28. Now, as they were eating, now this would be Jesus and his disciples eating the Passover meal. Jesus took bread. What kind of bread would it be? Unleavened, right? And after blessing it, so he gives thanks for it, with it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I, I, I emphasize the is there, because... Uh, that is, when we get down to talking about what do we believe is actually received when we are receiving the Lord's Supper. 
Notice Christ did not say, this symbolizes my blood, or this is an image for my blood, or this represents my blood, or some uh, other type of symbolic word. He said, this is my body. And when talking about the wine in the cup, said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. And notice at the end, we get the forgiveness of sins, right? So in, this, in these uh, what are the three verses here, we've got all three of the criteria for a sacrament met, don't we? We've got it commanded by God. We've got a visible element or physical element. We've got two of them, actually. We've got, we've got bread and wine. And we've got the forgiveness of sins. So we've got all three in, in three verses right there. Okay? And so notice again that it, it is not a representation and the cup, again, we don't know exactly which of the cups of wine that were in the Passover meal at that time. Again, many think it was the third one, but that's not critical that we identify that. And notice, drink of it, all of you. So all of Christ's disciples are partaking of this. And notice there, it is poured out for many. This blood is poured out for many, and absolutely is the case. Okay? So that's Matthew. And... Um, Let's go on now uh, to Mark 14, 22 to 24. And as they were, again, this Christ and his disciples were eating morning Thursday, he took bread again, unleavened bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, notice again, this is my body. Okay? And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood. Okay? Notice, not represents, not uh, symbolizes. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So again, a reference to this was going to be the final time he's going to be drinking of that fruit of the vine or wine at that time. Okay? Before he goes into kingdom of heaven. All right, so again, uh, again, Mark, same thing we've got in Matthew, is, is, uh, same order, same everything. Let's go to Luke 22, 19 and 20. And he, this would be Jesus, of course, took bread, I love the bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body. I hate to sound, sound like a record up here, but um, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Um, I would say, uh, well, I'll, I'll say this for a little bit later. I wanted to say just a word about do this. That's why we try to follow very, very, as closely as we possibly can, exactly what we read here. Christ said, do this, not something else. So we use unleavened bread. I know that um, those little wafers that, uh, that we use for communion don't seem much like bread, perhaps, at times. They're, they're just stamped out. Uh, you know, we have gone, I don't know if any of you have had the experience that uh, we've gone, when I was uh, much younger and uh, was uh, working with youth, uh, we, we would actually make our own unleavened bread before we went on a retreat, and we would have that, and it actually was more like bread. Uh, but the, I'm not saying that what we have is bread. It's just that it's very thin and just kind of stamped out. But we don't substitute, you know, 
uh, uh, crackers or you know some other uh, some other food for it. And we use wine. We don't substitute. There, we do have here at St. Paul's, in, toward the center of the communion trays, you'll probably see we have uh, some non-alcoholic wine, or it's very, very low uh, alcohol content wine, still wine. But we don't substitute, you know, some other drink or beverage uh, for the wine. We do this, and we actually will have what's called the words of institution, where we are saying that this bread and this wine now is going to be used in this special way. And according to God's promise, we are going to receive exactly what Christ said we're going to receive. I cannot explain it to you. Nobody else can explain it to you as to how when we receive bread and wine, we are also receiving the body and blood of Christ together with the forgiveness of all of our sin. We simply say Christ promised it. That's why we believe it. Okay? And we'll get into a little bit more of this, but I, it's simply by his promise. Okay? Not, not any, long, not any uh, more than I can explain any of the other miracles that occurred in the Bible. Right? I, we can't diagram it out on a board. We simply say, Christ said it, we believe it. That's good enough for us. Okay? So we, we do this, and um, we'll, I'll save something else for a little bit later. Now, let's go to Paul. Now, was Paul there... Uh, was Paul one of the disciples when, uh, when all this took place? Was he, was he there in the upper room? No. In fact, Paul was, uh, Paul was very much on the opposite side of things at that point, still as Saul. However, notice what he says here. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 25. For I received from the Lord. So he wasn't there, but who told him what happened on Monday, Thursday evening? The Lord himself told him. Don't know when this, it could have been connected with the Damascus Road experience. Might have been another time. We don't know. But he gets it straight from the Lord. So, the Lord, what I delivered to you. So I got it from the Lord. I then delivered it to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, unleavened bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this, here we go again, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Okay? So again, we're seeing very clearly here, not, there, there's no symbolic language used here at all. It's is, 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 all through here. Okay? Now, I've got a little box here, a little table uh, here, that I like to use when we talk about this subject just to show the differences. I want to identify for you the differences in there are three main views regarding the Lord's Supper. And I hope this is a, a, perhaps an easier way to remember it if you write in these boxes or in boxes of the table. First of all, I started with the Roman Catholic understanding. And uh, the Roman Catholic, first of all, would they say that there is any bread or wine received in the Lord's Supper? No. No. No bread, no wine. They, they will say when Christ said is, it's is. Okay, and we'll talk a little bit more about that coming up. How about body and blood? Would the Roman Catholic Church say body and blood is received in the Lord's Supper? Yes, absolutely. In fact, they would say that is what is received in the Lord's Supper. No bread and wine, just body and blood. And uh, this will be the, 
that show uh, who, wants to be, that, who wants to be a millionaire is not on anymore. Well, let's say you're on Jeopardy. Let's say you're on Jeopardy. And uh, this is the $200 uh, question. What's, what's the Roman Catholic view called? Does anybody know? Transubstantiation. That's your, that's your uh, the Jeopardy answer for the day. Uh, trans means change, right? I transform something, I change its form. So trans means change, and you get the word substance in there, right? So change in substance is what they'll say. And they will say, even though it has the appearance still of bread and wine, even though it, uh, it seems like it's bread and wine, it is actually in substance the body and blood of Christ. So it's transubstantiation is the Roman Catholic view. Okay? Now next, I've got the Lutheran understanding. Do we say, first of all, that bread and wine are received in the Lord's Supper? Yes, and I'll show you why in just a minute. Frankly, right now, if we were to stop right here, I've not shown you from the Bible at all why we believe bread and wine are received. If we were to stop right here, whose view would we, who would we be saying we have? Roman Catholic, yeah. If, if, I'm not going to show you, I'm going to show you in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 where Paul says we're eating bread, and that's why we, frankly, why we as Lutherans say this. But if we were to stop right now, we'd have a Roman Catholic understanding of the Lord's Supper if Paul hadn't written what he did in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Okay? So, yes, we say, yes, we have bread and wine. How about body and blood of Christ? Yes, absolutely, because, again, that's what, exactly what Christ says. Now, our view, uh, the Lutheran view, is called the real presence. Okay? Not Christmas presence, but presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. Okay? The real presence. Because we say that when we uh, receive the bread and wine, also really present and received in a way that we cannot, again, explain, is also the body and blood of Christ, okay? And the forgiveness of sins. But the real presence is our understanding, okay? Now, how about, I've got it labeled as Reformed here, the Reformed understanding, which would have been, uh, Zwingli was a contemporary of Luther, and then later Calvin came along near the end of Luther's life and lived uh, much longer. They championed this view, uh, which, uh, first of all, would say that, yes, there is bread and wine there. Bread and wine are definitely there. They are definitely received, and, and so on. They would say no to the body and blood of Christ. There is no body or blood of Christ received. That view, their view, is called symbolic uh, many times, or representative, because, again, the, the bread and the wine represent body and blood or symbolize uh, bread, or, uh, body and blood of Christ. But absolutely no body and blood of Christ received. Okay? Now, I haven't said that. I have talked uh, to some Methodists, some Baptists, and I've told them what we believe, and it's been in, in classes like this. And you know what their response has been to me? That's what I always believed. Because they were taking Christ at his word. And I, I said, well, I'm glad to hear that. However, that's not officially what your church would have taught or would have understood with regard to the Lord's Supper. I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you do have that, actually. Now, let's talk a little bit about this. because, First of all, why did Zwingli and Calvin? Zwingli and Calvin uh, always had the view that anything we believe 
uh, that comes from God must be understandable. It must be logical. Zwingli had a famous statement that God would never lead us into darkness or into something that we cannot understand. And he always maintained that, yes, I know I can't deny that Christ said is, but he couldn't have meant is. He had to have meant uh, uh, symbolizes. That it's just not logical. And, and so there's this, there's this um, driving uh, uh, force to want to have it logical and have it understood. Okay? Same thing happens with baptism, with infant baptism. That's not logical. We're not going to do it, right? We're going to wait till an age of dedication and, and wait till the child can, can actually confess a faith, verbalize a faith. And so that's why uh, the Reformed uh, to this day uh, believe this. Luther was at a meeting in a city called Marburg, and he was down at one end of the table, and Zwingli was down at the other end of the table. And the story goes that they agreed on 13 of 14 different points of doctrine, because they, were, they had in common that they were coming out of the Roman Catholic Church. And boy, wouldn't it be nice to join forces together? And, and so they got the 13 of 14. Guess what they didn't agree on? What we're talking about right now. And Luther, in the dust of the table, wrote the German word ist and, and pulled the cover back and said, this is what Christ said. And they ended up not agreeing. Uh, that 13 out of 14, which, not too bad, huh? <laughs> but that was important enough to Luther where he said, no, we cannot be together on this. And so that is still the case this day, that uh, if you uh, go to uh, any Reformed church where Calvinism is taught, uh, John Calvin or Zwingli, uh, Baptist churches, most Methodist churches, it, you will be, have a representative uh, understanding or symbolic understanding of the Lord's Supper. Uh, I think it's also fair to say that in those churches it is not received as often as it is in either a Lutheran or a Catholic church. It is done much less frequently. Now, I, at the same time, I will say that, you know, unfortunately in our Lutheran church we had a, a, a time there where we, I've heard this, uh, that it was done in some Lutheran churches only like quarterly. And this goes way back. I'm not talking about recently, but way back. Quarterly. Can you imagine that? And, and the logic given was, if we do it too often, it'll lose its specialness. Well, what makes it special? It's not, it's not, it's, what makes it special is what you're receiving there, what God is giving you there. You know? And so fortunately, that practice has changed a great deal. There are a lot of Lutheran Church Missouri Synod congregations where it is received at every, every service, every Sabbath day, every service. Uh, we have it here uh, at St. Paul's every Sunday. It's just that it's in the sanctuary on the first and third Sundays. It's here in Livingstone on the second and fourth Sundays. And on a fifth Sunday, it's everywhere, okay, all services. Uh, we have it every uh, Lenten service, every Advent service. Uh, you know, so we, uh, I think it's fair to say, do it quite frequently. However, we do not do it in every service. That's, that's true. I don't know if it's ever been done here in the, in the past at every service. But that's, that's our practice here. And I'm not being critical of anybody who does it either more or less, but that's simply our, been our practice here. Now, let me ask you this. Is there a remembrance factor when it comes to the Lord's Supper? Yeah, 
I mean, I think it's pretty hard to go and receive the Lord's body and blood without remembering what he did, right? I mean, I think that it goes right along with it. So I'm not saying that, no, there's no aspect of this that is a remembrance. It certainly is. But what I am saying is Christ has told us there's a lot more than that. You know, that's, that's a part of it, but there's a lot more we re, well, in terms of what we receive when we go to the Lord's Supper. Okay? So let's turn uh, to the third uh, side now and top of the page there. Um, what are, I already answered this, I think. What are some denominations that would have this understanding of the Lord's Supper today? Again, the symbolic understanding, which would be, again, uh, Baptist, Methodist, Reformed, uh, Assemblies of God, uh, you know, the, the ones in that, in that uh, range. All right, now, why do, why do the Roman Catholics say that we no longer have bread and wine in uh, the, the Lord's Supper? Why do Roman Catholics say that? What did Christ say? Yes, this is. So you can definitely say, yes, they are being uh, true to what Christ actually said. And, and we would commend them for that. Um, and it, it changes into uh, the bread and the wine. Or uh, the body and blood, I'm sorry. And again, they, uh, they'll say that it may look like bread and wine, but it changes substance into the body and blood of Christ. I will say this also about Roman Catholics, that they are very consistent, their practice is very consistent with what they teach and what they believe. You may have, if you've gone into a Catholic church, there is a, a big box structure called a tabernacle, and it's either, it's either on the altar or maybe off to the side uh, slightly from the altar. And that is where the remaining host, or they would say body of Christ, is kept in between the what they would call masses or we call services, and they will actually bow or reverence that because again, in that box is the actual body of Christ. Many times the priests will drink the remaining uh, we would say wine, but uh, they would say blood of Christ, but they keep that uh, that leftover host in that tabernacle box. Um, if you spill wine on the carpet in the, in the chancel, do you think uh, you just go out and rent a rug doctor and come and, uh, and uh, put it up? No. They, I have heard of them actually cutting up a section of carpet, a little, you know, and, and put it again in that, in that tabernacle. So I want to say that Roman Catholics are very consistent. Their practice is very consistent with what they believe. It's not that they say one thing and they practice another. Okay? It's very consistent. Now... Uh, why is transubstantiation not our view? Let's, let's look at what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 10, starting with verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Sure is. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Sure is. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one Bread, bread, all partaking of bread, okay? I'm going to come back to this verse and make another point a little bit later on. But let's read 1 Corinthians 11, the next one. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, we'll come back and talk about this unworthy manner, will be guilty 
concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Okay? So repeatedly here, in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, Paul is talking about actually eating bread. So again, this is why we as Lutherans say we've got four elements there. We've got body and blood of Christ, according to Christ's words and promise to us. We've got bread and wine. Paul here talks about eating bread repeatedly. So the earthly elements we talk about, bread and wine, and we sometimes refer to the body and blood as the heavenly elements that are received also. In a way, again, that we cannot explain, cannot uh, diagram, it's simply because Christ has promised that's what we believe. Okay? So this is why we have a view called the real presence. Okay? Now, there is also what I would call a horizontal aspect to the Lord's Supper. In other words, some people think, okay, I come to the Lord's table and I receive the body and blood of Christ, I receive the forgiveness of sin, it's just me and God. And I, I'm not denying there, there's certainly that aspect to it. There's no question about it. But there's also a horizontal aspect to it with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You are all, as Paul said right there, you are all, Paul's saying we're many different people, but we all partake of the one bread, and that makes us one body. Okay? So that demonstrate it's more than just a demonstration. It's a, we are one body because we are all partaking of that one loaf. See, that's at the end of verse 17, uh, that 1 Corinthians 10. We all partake of the one bread. And so we as Lutherans believe that when we come to the Lord's table, we should, first of all, be one body in, that, in the sense that we all have a common understanding, first of all, of what we are receiving, first of all, when we come to the Lord's table, and we were together on that, but also of some, some other things as well. And so that, that we believe we are a sinner, we believe that we repent of our sin, we believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin, and again, we, we have a common understanding of the Christian faith. See, I just lost my microphone here. Okay, I'll be back. Uh, this is referred to, I like to call it close, C-L-O-S-E, communion. Sometimes you will hear it called closed communion with a, with a D on the end of it. I don't like that as much, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But we do, we do have this understanding that when we're coming to the Lord's table, we should all be understanding the same thing. That's why when we do adult confirmation, we first would like to have this session so that, uh, you know, people, first of all, would, would understand what we are believing we receive there. But quite frankly, if they disagree, then at least we'll know that up ahead, uh, ahead of time. Um, and so many times when someone is visiting our church, uh, we have a statement in our bulletin. I was going to bring our bulletin along and a communion statement in the front of it. Next, uh, before church, uh, if you're going to, next time you go to church, you're not, oh, okay, thank you. Boy, just say the word and here it is. Uh, but we, it, it says, uh, we, and we changed this actually in the last uh, year or so. And uh, you can read this yourself, but the Lord's Supper is celebrated every weekend at St. Paul's in the confession and glad confidence that, as he says, our Lord gives into our mouths not only bread and wine, but his very body and blood to eat and drink for the forgiveness of sins and to strengthen our union with him and with one another. Okay? And it goes on as some more. He's got to, now, 
What we do here is if somebody is either of a different confession, thank you, a different confession of faith. So let's say they're Baptist or Methodist uh, and, and uh, would not even uh, uh, believe that we're receiving the same thing. We still invite them to come forward to the Lord's table simply to make a, a, a pattern of an X with their arms and we give them a blessing. We're still recognizing them, obviously, as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, but recognizing also that we have a different understanding of the Lord's Supper. And we've had a number of people that are doing this, and, and I think that's, that's wonderful. It's great. Um, so anyway, we call this close communion. So many times before service, not many times, it happens uh, not all the time, but we'll have somebody come up and an usher will say, hey, there's, you know, this person is here. Uh, they'd like to receive communion. Uh, and so we will talk with them. And I'll tell you, 99.9% .9 of the time, the person is a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod person because they know enough to come and ask the question before the service starts. And so if they're a member of another Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod congregation, I guess we're sort of assuming that they have the same understanding of the Lord's Supper. If not... That's what we start asking them. You know, what do you believe you're receiving here? And the reason I like close instead of closed communion is because we, uh, this doesn't happen often, there are several here at our, at our church where we make what we call pastoral exceptions. In other words, for a reason, they are not becoming a member of St. Paul's Lutheran Church. But we know from their going through this class and talking with them that they believe the same thing we believe, okay? And we are communing them. With the elders' uh, knowledge and permission, we are communing them. Uh, any case like that, we would bring to the elders, explain it. And so that's why I prefer close to closed when we talk about our position. And there, in, in these cases, there is a physical reason, sometimes a familial reason, that they are not uh, officially joining and becoming a Lutheran, but in their mind, in their heart, they are a Lutheran. And we've always, in fact, there's, we won't read it now, we'll have enough time. There's that statement down there at the very end of what I've got for you there from our Commission on Theology and Church Relations document that says we have always had this practice of being able to make a pastoral exception where it is called for, okay? So I, I've always appreciated that about our position. But the, if you hear the term close communion, that's what we're talking about, is that we do believe there's a horizontal aspect to this as well with our brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? Now, just a few things real quickly that are not on your sheet. Does it matter if we have individual cups of communion or a single chalice communion for the wine? No. Uh, it, the, the manner in which the wine is distributed and receive, we would say, does not make any difference. We here at St. Paul's only have the individual cups. Um, there's, maybe some people don't like that. I don't know. We have had visitors. We had one, I'll never forget, it was uh, last year. And this was at a, a midweek Lenten service, and they were a guest, so they didn't know this at all. And so the guy, I come by with the host. The elder comes by with the individual cups. And the guy doesn't take any, and he's looking around like, where's the, where's the common cup going to come next? And I, I said to the, said to the go, go back, you know, he, he thinks there's a common cup and there isn't one. I, and so, uh, but, uh, and, and some people make a huge deal out of this and say, oh, you've got to have the common cup or you're really not having communion because you all need to drink from the one cup. And we say, no, again, the, the manner in which it is 
distributor received does not, does not matter. So again, we, we, tend, we, we use the individual cup here. Um, again, as I said before, the frequency of how many times we offer it here, we would say is not, uh, that's a matter of, of liberty, Christian liberty for us to decide, and that's what we have done. Uh, we have it every Sunday here, just not in every service every Sunday here. Um, how about this? Is it more of a communion if you kneel at the rail than if you walk and uh, receive the Lord's Supper? Does it make it more, more communion if you're kneeling at the altar? No. Okay. Now, I, I was, having said that, I prefer that personally, and I think a lot of people prefer that personally, to be a little more reverent and uh, take a moment there to, to uh, think about uh, and, and reflect upon what you're actually receiving. But again, the manner, just like we would say with baptism, right? Whether I pour the water, whether I immerse uh, the person, the, the manner in which it is done in terms of the, the element received does not make it any more or less either a baptism or a communion, okay? Um, let's see. Oh, I wanted to say just a word about the unworthy manner. Um, Paul says anyone who receives it in an unworthy manner is guilty of the body and blood of Christ. Unworthy, first of all, unrepentant of sin, I think we could all agree is unworthy, right? Not, no faith in Christ, or not believing Christ is your Savior, shouldn't be coming up there. And also, we would include understanding what you are actually receiving there. In Corinth, they had a practice where they would come together for what, uh, I think the closest thing is a Lutheran, it would be a potluck uh, dinner, I guess, where they, they had a big meal, big feast. And they even got to the point where they were feasting so much and drinking so much of the wine that the, they were getting drunk before the, the meal was ended. The haves were not sharing with the have-nots, and so some were gorging themselves, others were hungry. And then they go into the Lord's, they go into the Lord's Supper. Testing, te okay, there we are, okay. <laughs> not sure what's happening. Uh, then they would go right into the Lord's Supper. Paul's saying, you're not discerning the body and the blood of Christ from what you were doing before. So we would say again that discerning, that the, the fact that you're receiving the body and blood of Christ is again something you should be doing. And, and understanding that when you come forward for the Lord's Supper, at least having knowledge of that when you come forward for the Lord's Supper. So we, wanna, we're, we do our best by the statement we have in the bulletin. Now, can Pastor Thompson and I read everybody's mind as they're coming to the Lord's table, coming to the rail, and uh, absolutely verify that they have a correct understanding of what they're receiving. No, obviously not. We're trusting that, number one, if they're members of ours, they've been instructed, not only been instructed, but they actually believe, and uh, you know, this is their position when they're coming forward, and they are receiving those gifts uh, in a, in a faith-filled way, okay? So anyway, this is our uh, position. We're almost out of time here. Uh, any questions, any comments, anything that I can clarify any more before we wrap up? Adon. Okay, a great question. Is there a difference between communion wine and regular wine? No. And uh, I think I'll say this. Uh, the, right for, for uh, generations, uh, the village bar right next door to us here has been supplying our communion wine here. And in fact, when it was sold, the former owner made sure 
that that was put in the, into the sale document, and to this day, they are still supplying our communion wine. So, yeah, I, I don't know if it's uh, Bogan David or whatever it is, but it's, it's, uh, it's just regular wine that you would go out to go to Schnucks or Deerberg's and or buy it there. So there's no difference. Oh, yeah, Jim? Jim? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, good question. Jim was asking if you're at a wedding, let's say it's a Roman Catholic wedding and they have the Lord's Supper. We normally would not participate in that because, again, we're of a different understanding, right? Uh, we're making a different confession concerning that. Then that's a great question. Thanks for bringing that up. Also, one other thought I just had uh, when we were talking about the wine here, that um, there, we have a special uh, drain here at, at St. Paul's that a lot of churches have. It goes not into the sewer, but goes out onto the ground. It's called a Pisidia, and it's in the, it's in the uh, uh, sacristy room back there. And now again, somebody can say, well, you Lutherans, if it's just wine, uh, why don't you just pour it down the drain? And I guess, technically speaking, we could. But the wine that is left over uh, many times will be flushed down that drain, and just out of reverence for what it was used with. Now, again, if somebody wanted to press us on it, we would say, yeah, there's technically nothing wrong with, you know, it's just wine, but it's just, again, out of reverence for what it is has been used for. Okay, Don? Yes. Yeah. To my knowledge, the baptismal water also. Most, uh, I'm not back there when they take it back there, but the baptismal water, again, you could say, Lutherans, you said it's just simple water. And yes, if they wanted to press us on it, we could just put it down the drain. But again, we try to treat it respectfully just because of what it was used for. Now we're over time. KFUO is going to get mad at me, so let's close. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.